Hey everybody, this is Ben Kesnoka, co-founder and partner at Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is our podcast, where we go deep on all things business and technology with world-leading experts. Hello, and welcome to Venture Stories. We're thrilled today to welcome Julio Vasconcelos and Anna Martins, both partners at Atlantico, a Latin American-focused VC firm. Julio is also co-founder of Canary, a seed stage firm focused on Brazil. Julia, Anna, and their team published the famous yearly Latin American Digital Transformation Report, which we're going to talk about today. Welcome, Julio and Anna. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Wonderful to be back. Well, yes, Thank this is so an much, <laughs> become an annual event. And um, let's set the table. Can you remind us what's the size of the LATAM market? So I think that the thing to remember about Latin America is that it's huge, both in terms of people, right? It's over 650 million people when you sum up the region. Uh, and the economy, the sort of total GDP is around $6 trillion. So if you were to consider it a country, you'd be sort of number three in the world both in terms of the size of the economy and the population. Got it. And there are some big uh, movers and shakers within the region. And so how should we think specifically about the relative size of Brazil and Mexico? Yeah, I think that the key thing to remember is Brazil is roughly a third of the region, uh, both sort of population and GDP, and Mexico is around a quarter. So when you consider those two, I think they're usually pretty indicative of what's going on everywhere because you have over half the people and half the dollars. Great. And your optimism about venture scale returns in the region is validated by an index you created called the Digital Transformation Index. Can you explain that? So we we developed this Digital Transformation Index in the first year that we published the report back in 2020. Now we're on to the fourth year. Uh, and what we did here was we looked at the value of all publicly listed technology companies from a given region. And we compare that value uh, to, the, to the GDP of that region, just to be able to kind of compare apple to apples. Uh, and then we compared it across regions in the world. So we looked at Latin America and Brazil specifically within it, uh, United States, China, India, Southeast Asia. And every year we, we publish the, the, the main regions. And the interesting thing to look at is, you know, when you double click on the index and you look at, for example, the United States, the United States is at over 60% when we think about that kind of technology company penetration. You know, China is around 20%, India is a little over 10%. But then when you shift your gaze to Latin America, which is at 1.8% today, it's pretty shocking how we are an order of magnitude lower than a lot of those other regions, even though, as we mentioned in the beginning, we have a huge population, we have a, a, a large economy. And I think where we concluded here is that, you know, despite the, the great opportunity, because we started later in terms of technology penetration and technology evolution, we're still catching up. And, and, and when we when we double click on this data, and we look at actually the last 20 20 years, we, we've done this analysis over uh, annually since 2000, since, since the year 2000. What we what we notice is that Latin America is roughly 10 to 15 years behind where China is. The curves look very different, but it just kind of shifted in time about a decade. Uh, and, and China is about five to seven years behind the United States. So when we think about you know the the progress of technology and the fact that 
software, technology, innovation isn't really the monopoly of the United States or Europe or China or other uh, of the sort of further ahead uh, economies in terms of technology innovation. We really think that this technology genie is out of the is out of the bottle. It is accessible to everyone. We think that this catch up is is going to happen over the next you know ten to twenty years, and we think that it's going to create sort of this massive value as Latin America and Brazil you know catch up to some of these more developed countries. And and we're not here to say that we think Brazil is going to be at the same level of penetration as the United States, but we definitely think it's very feasible for us to be around the same levels of penetration that you see for China. You know, and certainly, you know, at the level of India, if not further ahead than India, a country that, you know, although has a, a massive population, has a much smaller GDP per capita, just a, you know, generally poorer population when you compare it to Latin America. And 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 the reason why we're optimistic when we think about this digital transformation index is, is when we think about what the potential for value creation is in the region, right? If we take Latin America and you think that we could catch up to India over these, you know, call it next 10 years, we're talking about a potential for value creation of roughly six hundred billion dollars, and if you and if you look a little further ahead and you think we can catch up to China or even the United States, now you're talking about value creation that's measured in the trillions of dollars, uh, and that really is, is what I think drives a lot of our optimism, and our in, in particular our long-term optimism about the region. Yeah, and if I could add on to that, Anne, um, I think one one new piece of of data that we've brought this year, um, and and we have our our friends at Clock Tower Ventures to to thank for that. As Julia was mentioning, kind of the the comparison to India, when we actually stop looking at GDP and we look at the total value of market capitalization in public equities markets across countries, and we compare Latin America to India, twenty twenty three is actually the year where the tech percentage of that market cap reached the same levels as India. So if you kind of trying to compare apples to apples here, you look at the total market capitalization of public equity companies in Latin America and total market cap of public equities companies in India, the percentage of penetration of tech in that value is roughly the same. So we're, we're seeing kind of these very early signs that, that are positive indications that we do have the potential over the next decade or so to create the amount of value um, Compared compared to India, which, as Julia mentioned, it's in the hundreds of billions of dollars. Exciting! And you released your Latin American Digital Transformation Report today. What surprised you most versus year ago? Yeah, I can take that one. I think what was you know really really interesting this year is that the level of optimism that we're seeing from founders, which are kind of the population that we surveyed, but also more qualitatively from investors as it compares to, to last year, is it's really impressive. Um, and optimism kind of went only from 8% last year to, to nearly 44%. I think Julio here always says that for, for you to, to be a founder, you need to be extremely optimistic, right? So So when we're talking about 8%, you know, that's that's basically negative 100 in, in founder language. Um, so we're really st- starting to see kind of that that optimism pop back in um, and, and makes us excited for for what the future could look like. I think that was the, the most surprising piece of data on, on my end. I don't know, Julia, if you have anything to add. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would just add on to this point on the on the founder sentiment, right? I think that the the, the growth and optimism is key. But I, I do think it's also worthwhile mentioning that uh, there is still kind of a lingering feeling of caution 
you know, last year, almost 60% of founders said that they were feeling cautious about the year ahead. And you know, that number has certainly dropped to, to a little below 50% this year. Uh, but the fact that a lot of founders are still you know, proceeding with caution, even though with a lot of optimism and a lot of excitement, uh, I think it d- does speak a little bit to the experience over these last 18 months or so. And and, and I think that it's it, it's it's hard not to have this feeling given just the kind of whipsaw nature that the markets have have taken us through uh, over these last two years, I would say, and certainly in the run up to to this, you know, last last drop that we saw in the market. I think that m- founders were hard press in terms of uh, their their strategies over the last couple of years. They were, you know, by and large, uh, you know, forced to take the hard medicine and, you know, cut team sizes, cut burn, extend runway uh, in order to really be able to kind of be leaner and meaner and and, and be able to execute better. Uh, we, we did a survey uh, with a few hundred founders, uh, which we did in in collaboration with uh, Runa, which is a startup up in, uh, up in Mexico. Uh, and we saw that Almost three quarters of all companies had some sort of layoffs in the last eighteen months. So you clearly see that it was a it was a challenging time, and I think that that obviously uh, leaves some battle scars with founders. But I think the fact that we now have greater agility, greater focus, and greater runway, I think, does bring this renewed sense of purpose uh, and optimism, like Anna said, uh, going in the next couple of years. Great. And now let's turn. What did you learn about fundraising? I think when we turn to fundraising, and and, and, I'll, and I'll speak to just funding levels more broadly, because I think that's obviously the, the the way that this gets manifest in the in the in the region. First thing I would note is that you know Latin America had one of the sharpest uh, decreases and adjustments in venture funding when we look at the quarter two data of this year, and compared to about a year ago, you know we had a we had a sharper drop than call it the sort of the U.S. average. Uh, but that's also a, a fact that you know the the increase here what was greater also you know a few years back. So you know as a smaller region, I think that you know things tend to be a little bit more volatile. So the the highs are higher and the lows are lower. But I think that it's important not to lose sight uh, of where we are in history. When we think about twenty twenty one, we we really see that year as the exception rather than the rule. We think that was a year that we all know here was a. A year of excess, not just in Latin America, but but around the world. Uh, and even though we're 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 far down from those peak levels of funding, when you look at the last four quarters of venture funding in Latin America, and 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 things have stabilized here now for four quarters at around a billion dollars a quarter of venture funding. That's the same level uh, that we saw back in 2020. So we we think it's still a, a very healthy level when you compare 2020 and 2019, you know, to the years that that preceded those years, uh, they were already sort of significantly up from historic levels. Uh, so we think that the, the the level of funding that we have here is is healthier. It's enough uh, access to capital for you know new companies to get started to get scaled. Um, and 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 we do think that that's also something that contributes both to founder optimism, but also to to inv- investor uh, optimism. I think the, the last thing I would say is that the the other curious thing that we saw this last quarter was that the volume or number of deals, the deal count uh, in Latin America went up, even though you know uh, total dollar volume of funding was stable, with deal count going up. What that means is that sort of the average round. Um, you know, went down, right? Then the, the amount raised per round. And, and, and that's usually a pretty good indicator of valuation. We definitely saw kind of a valuation reset. We can go into that a little bit deeper later if you if you, if you wish. 
Um, but we saw valuation reset. We saw rounds getting smaller. I think we saw founders and investors just being a little bit more cautious, as I mentioned before, uh, uh, going forward. Um, but it, but but the fact that deal count is going up does also reflect the fact that the market is picking up. We we certainly feel you know qualitatively that this quarter we're much busier than we were you know probably in the in the twelve months prior. So we are starting to see kind of that renewal of uh, a founding of companies and, and of excitement going on in the market. So what happened to all the private unicorns that have been funded recently over the past couple of years? Yeah. So, so, you know, we saw a huge kind of uptick in both the number and the valuation of unicorns from, from 2020 to now. I think that's been kind of big news all over the world. It's what attracted a lot of foreign investors in the region kind of starting in 2018, but really picking up in 2020, 2021. And, and maybe even before we go into the data more, more qualitatively, we, we host something at Atlantico called the Good View Summit every year. Um, and what we basically do is we host a weekend um, off the record chats with all of the Brazilian CEOs of unicorns to a little bit of educate ourselves in terms of what's top of mind for them. And a lot of those learnings we're able to apply to, to our own portfolio companies. And before planning that event every year, we reach out to all of them and we ask, hey, kind of what's been top of mind for you? What have you been discussing at your board meetings? What would you like to, to discuss um, at this event this year? And and not, not surprisingly, I think the past couple of years have been more about kind of making adjustments according to the market, right? So as Julia mentioned, 78% of companies in the region did, did layoffs in, in the past 18 months. Um, and this came not only from kind of early stage companies, but also unicorns, also big traditional companies. And so it was a big topic over the last couple of years. But this year, we we kind of saw kind of liquidity and and preparation for exits come back to to the top of the list. And and that's a long winded preparation. Right? It usually takes one, two, three years for you to be able to fully prepare your company for an exit and to build up to to an appropriate kind of. Uh, level of of growth and of compliance to be able to pursue those exits, but that's a pretty good indication for us qualitatively that some of these unicorns are, you know, really really great candidates for for IPOs or big acquisitions in in the next two or three years. And we saw kind of a few examples from from the past couple of years, right? We saw Newbank IPOing at a forty one billion dollar market cap. That was the biggest. Uh, exit that we've seen in the past five years in emerging markets. I think the only one that comes close to that is is Grab in, in Southeast Asia, based out of Singapore, but um, operates all across Southeast Asia. And and Gympass recently raised kind of a big private round, 2.4 billion valuation, showing that it's been able to reach market expectations for both growth and profitability. Um, so looking forward, we we expect this trend to continue for those companies that that have been able to make the proper adjustments, that have been able to pick back up on growth. I think names like iFood, Quintonda, Loft, Wildlife, these are all really great candidates um, and and great quality companies that you know might be preparing for for an exit soon. Um, so so we'll hopefully see this kind of exit window opening up again in in the next couple of years. Can you talk a little bit more about how founders are thinking about going public potentially in the United States versus the M&A market? Yeah, I think historically in Latin America, you've kind of had three different exit paths, right? You can either go public in the United States, and that's usually reserved for the bigger companies, as we've seen with Nubank, um, with earlier on um, with Pagaseguro, with Stone, 
We've also seen quite big M&As in the region, kind of the most recently being Pismo, right, which was acquired by, by Visa for a billion dollars. But if we backtrack a few years, we also saw 99 being acquired by DD at a billion dollars, which is a similar level to some companies that have chosen to IPO abroad, such as Vtex, right? If, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think they've IPO'd at the, at the billion dollar mark as well. Um, so I would say it, it depends company to company, but those are all pretty valid exit uh, pathways. When we look at local IPOs, those have kind of picked up in the past few years as well. We saw companies like Melius and Jouet deciding to go public here at a market cap closer to kind of 400 to 500 billion dollars, which is still pretty, pretty large companies, um, both in terms of their, their revenue, um, also in terms of their reach across the country. Um, so we... I think the decision usually depends on on the nature of that company and also what what is the appetite both for for IPOs in the local and and broader market and also the interest from from bigger acquirers which is which is usually more scarce right so a big story of the past 12 months has been inflation can you talk to how inflation and other macro factors impacted the region inflation is a is a is a great topic I think to tech on on the region, you know, I I remember growing up in Brazil in the eighties and nineties, and you know, going to the supermarket and seeing you know the price adjusters going down the aisles and kind of adjusting prices, you know, almost daily as hyperinflation took hold of the country, and and I think that in the same way that that memory has been uh, sort of seared in my head and in my past, I think that central bankers here that also grew up here in those times. Uh, of hyperinflation and the same story played out in Mexico and Chile and Argentina to different extents and at different points of time. You know, central bankers here also have great deep experience and scars from dealing with inflation. So when the entire world saw inflation uh, ticking up a couple of years ago, Latin America was actually one of the first regions to quickly uh, adjust interest rates and increase rates to tame inflation. And I think the fact that uh, central bankers here were willing to act pretty swiftly and pretty early is now starting to pay off, right? So we just saw uh, the Brazilian central bank and Chile as well being uh, some of the first countries in the entire world to lower rates. Uh, so as we, we start seeing kind of that, that rate lowering motion, uh, the expectation is that that'll help to fuel uh, growth in the economy. It'll also help fuel you know, a shift of capital, at least in a comparative sense, from, you know, safer uh, fixed income type investments to higher risk, uh, longer term investments like venture capital. So um, we definitely see that as a, a, a strong uh, tailwind that we have now from something that used to be a headwind and continues to be a headwind in a lot of other places in the world. Uh, but I think that, you know, when we talk about macro, it's not just about inflation and interest rates. I, I do think that there's a few other important factors here at work. You know, we, we, we wrote this year that Latin America is the engine of the world when we think about what the world needs. And the world needs two things today. One is we need green energy. Uh, and as we think about the energy transition that's taken over the world and the minerals that you need to fuel that transition for you know, the shift to electric electric power, to wind turbines, a lot of those minerals are greatly concentrated in Latin America. And Latin America is the world's greatest export of things like lithium and copper and everything else. And, and the demand that's forecast for those minerals, uh, those commodities is expected to grow incredibly over the next couple of decades. So as you start seeing that, migration to, to green energy production uh, worldwide, 
that is going to provide yet another tailwind, I think, when you think about Latin American exports and Latin American growth. And I think that the last way that we we, we think about this as well is maybe through a more geopolitical lens in, in a world where things have become much more polarized between the United States and China. Latin America, as one of the regions that has been able to actually maintain a pretty neutral position, has come out as an unlikely winner in this more polarized world, right? We've both been able to increase trade with uh, the United States. So I think just as of last month, Mexico became the U.S.'s biggest trade partner, kind of surpassing China. Uh, and on the flip side, so 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 we were winning, you know, through through nearshoring and through exports, kind of on the U.S. side, but also on the Chinese side, you know, have great great exports and great trade that's coming out of China. Uh, that perhaps is being prevented from coming to the United States. And we do start seeing kind of that trade balance with Latin America increasing with, with China. We now see, uh, as of 2020, China being Latin America and South America's biggest uh, trade partner ahead of the United States. So we're we're kind of winning on both sides when you think about trade balance and exports and, 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 and economic growth. And I think all that, that, that triad of factors of lowering interest rates, greater demand for commodities out of the region, as well as sort of this greater growth with both the U.S. and China, I think are all huge uh, magnifiers of uh, the, the future macro situation in Latin America. That was the first time I had seen uh, in your anywhere was your report highlighting that Mexico has become the U.S.'s largest trading partner. So really uh, interesting data. Um, now, let's talk a little bit about Brazil specifically. What's thriving there? Yeah, so when we when we think about Brazil, I think it's a it's a pretty pretty good proxy to think about Latin America as a whole when you're when you're seeing it from from the perspective of an investor, right? Most venture dollars flow into Brazil. Actually, this year, what was really surprising is Mexico for the first time reached a very similar level of venture dollars um, compared to Brazil, and we can talk a little bit more about that later. Um, but the the scenario in Brazil is continues to be quite optimistic, not only at at the macro level, but given that financial services as such a big driver of the economy in Brazil, the success of financial inclusion, mostly fueled by, by the central bank here, has been truly impressive. And, and I think it's kind of building the, the foundations for a lot of new businesses to, to start and to take advantage of that opportunity. So, so for those of you that, that don't know, the, the central bank in Brazil has become kind of a, a global benchmark for, for how to implement both a real-time payment system, which we call PIX here, but also a, a very complete open banking agenda that allows users to have more control over their own data, um, allows financial institutions to, to trade data with each other, which is very valuable when you think about different services that they can offer, how can improve how that can improve their their ability to give credit, for example, um, offer services such as insurance, investments, pensions to to users, and so they've they've done a really really incredible job. And what we've seen this year, it's We've seen PIX, which is the real-time payment system, for the first time, completely overtaking cash. And when you think about the implications of that, right, it's it's more um, it's it's a great benefit to the population in terms of of convenience. But more than that, it's a huge proxy for for financial inclusion. So what happens when kind of money truly goes digital um, is that people will start to have a lot more access to every other financial service that that institutions have to offer. And when you see kind of how that correlates with with the formality of the economy and and access to credit, the correlation is is very strong. Um, so that's something that's that's gotten us pretty pretty excited about Brazil and and the types of companies that can be built here going forward. Uh, how do you think about Mexico opportunities these days? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting because we we saw a really big dichotomy in this year's report, right? We saw kind of venture dollars um, getting to the level of of Brazil when you think kind of percentage of dollars in Latin America going to to Mexico versus Brazil. But we also see that in terms of digital maturity, Mexico still lags a few years behind. And it's hard to say how much, but I would say something around kind of five to 10 years. And there are a lot of factors feeding into that, right? Um, there's the, the level of informality in the economy in Mexico is, is much higher than what we see in Brazil. The cost of data in Mexico, kind of if you if you think about the the level of competition that's historically been in um, in Mexico when it comes to telco, it's it's been very low and the cost of data for users is very high, which means it's much more difficult for them to access digital services. And most of all, when you look at bankerization, I mentioned here, in Brazil, we see only 20% of, of payments being done in cash. That number is, is 60% in Mexico, right? Um, and again, that's that's extremely correlated with, with the level of formality in the economy and also access to credit. So there's there's massive opportunity for that to improve in the future. We're seeing a few tailwinds. Um, the central bank now is, is launching a new payment system called Demo, which is a little bit more similar to PIX in terms of what it requires for from users to be onboarded into the system and, and to make transactions. Mexico tried to do that before back in, in 2019 with Cody, but but the adoption was was extremely low. When you look at the number of validated accounts today, that's around 10 million in Mexico and Brazil for PIX, just to give you a, a benchmark, um, that number is, is nearly uh, 500 million. Um, so, so the success in Brazil has been much greater, but we're seeing the central bank make more moves in Mexico towards a more digital uh, economy. And we're also seeing kind of the rise of more fintechs in Mexico, the rise of new banks in Mexico. So there's a few tailwinds that might explain a little bit more of why venture dollars have been flowing more to the region alongside some of these macro factors that we mentioned before, such as nearshoring, which which are, you know, a lot of investors are betting that that's going to that's going to fuel the economy in Mexico. But if you if you take a step back and kind of look at the level of maturity of the market, it's really a few years um, behind Brazil, which maybe it's a good thing. If you think about Brazil 10 years ago, massive opportunity for investments. That's when a lot of the companies that were seeing the the exits uh, that we mentioned, um, as we were talking about before, they started 10 years ago. Um, so that that that's the way that we've been seeing Mexico uh, as, as, as investors. Great. And in addition to thinking about the countries, are there particular cities, school alumni networks, company alumni networks that are entrepreneurial hotbeds these days? So unsurprisingly, right, a lot of the entrepreneurial action in Brazil is concentrated in Sao Paulo. You have a little bit of action in Rio. What do you think about Mexico? It's a lot in Mexico City. Guadalajara has been a, an unlikely uh, hub that has emerged in the past few years. Monterrey is also uh, the, the level of uh, the universities in Monterrey have have actually yielded amazing entrepreneurs based out of Monterrey. Um, in Colombia, a lot of the action is concentrated on, on Bogota. But maybe the, the ecosystems that are more underrated is, is when we look to uh, places like Argentina, right, where, you know, investors, especially from outside of the region, have chosen to stay away from. And, and it makes total sense. I mean, the, the volatility of the economy is is crazy. You know, the, the country is ex experiencing a period of hyperinflation. It's really hard to predict where, where regulation is going to go. But the talent in Argentina, in part because of the rise of Mercado Libre, which is the biggest tech company that we have in the region today, um, is, is really amazing. So us as Atlantico, we actually have three companies that are, are based out of Argentina. 
and operate in different countries in the region. So there's there's a really amazing hub for founders in Buenos Aires. Um, there's a great hub for founders in Uruguay. Um, and a lot of these founders kind of get their companies up and running, already thinking about expanding to, to other countries. And for a while, we heard about the alumni of RAPI, maybe alumni of Nubank. Are these the places that are kind of shedding entrepreneurs who are starting from ground zero? Or do you not observe that phenomenon so much anymore? I think we still see a fair share of entrepreneurs coming from from those companies. I would add a few to that. In Uruguay, we see D-Local. Um, there's a big kind of a, a D-Local alumni starting new companies in the region. A lot of them starting companies in the fintech space, payment infrastructure, payments, etc. Um, when we look at, at Meli in Argentina, there's a lot of uh, Meli alumni, um, especially Mercado Pago alumni that are that are building in the fintech space as well. Um, I think those those alumni groups are are still very much thriving. If you think about the period, for example, Newbank's IPO wasn't that long ago, right? So the time that it, it takes for the employers uh, employees to fully vest their stocks, to decide to start a new company, and then eventually get to the to the stage that we invest in at the Series A, you, you have a few years there. So we we would expect to see more more companies coming out from those alumni groups. Great. And let's dive into the particular sectors that you're most excited about for either founders starting companies or early stage investors. I would, let's just talk about two two sectors or, or models that I think are interesting and one that's more emerging. First of all, fintech is one that you can't ignore in Latin America. You know, depending on the year, it's anywhere between forty to fifty percent of venture dollars go to fintech. Latin America has really emerged as one of the global leaders in fintech. New bank that Anna mentioned is probably one of the most successful fintechs uh, in the world. And, and we continue to see innovation there. We we saw uh, potentially kind of this big third wave of innovation happening uh, with the advent of multiple kind of financial infrastructure companies that enable other companies to become fintechs or for other fintechs to start. So you have multiple unicorns today, maybe chief among them, uh, Doc, uh, the company that provides a lot of that infrastructure, we think probably another couple of emerging unicorns, companies like, you know, QI Tech and uh, Nelogica and other other folks like that that have been growing very well, uh, and we think are also kind of fueling this new wave of fintech. Uh, we also think there's another uh, opportunity here with B two B fintech. So the first revolution of fintech was uh, for consumer. We do think that now businesses, especially small businesses that tend to behave a lot like consumers, are now adopting technology. Uh, and innovating in the way that they, you know, manage manage financial flows and 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 manage uh, uh, everything related to sort of their their finances. So we're we're excited about that. We think that one one of the big changes that's been happening uh, in the region, which has been driven much more by the regulator, by the central bank, uh, and its innovation agenda uh, around digital payments, whether that's you know PICS that we we've talked about before, the sort of instant and free uh, payment rails that uh, have been rolled out in Brazil and are now used twice as often as cash is, just to give you one statistic there, um, but also with the open finance agenda that has been enabling, you know, data transfer and, you know, data sharing across financial institutions and kind of putting the power back in the user's hand as far as how your data is used and how you can unlock credit that way. Uh, and we've seen, you know, a, a greater level of competition, a greater le level of formalization, and therefore an increase in access to credit and growth when it comes to financial services. So we continue to be excited about that new wave of financial services and fintechs uh, in the region. Uh, the other one I would say 
is around where where we think the opportunity for SaaS is, and 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 software. Uh, you know, but broadly speaking, we we, we again uh, saw that the software market in, in Brazil was largely concentrated on the enterprise over these last few years after kind of some big consolidation that happened and I think big international entrants, the likes of SAP and Oracle fighting with sort of the, the, the local players. And we think that now with some of these more you know, vertically focused SaaS uh, models that are able to go to, again, you know, small and medium-sized businesses and offer them a one-stop shop for all of their digitalization needs. We think that the opportunity there is huge. Again, just to throw some numbers here, you know, Latin America, actually, when you think about all, when you look at all the businesses uh, in Latin America, uh, a greater percentage of them are SMBs compared to countries like the United States. So we have more SMBs here, but they actually contribute a lot less to the GDP than elsewhere. I think here, only about 25% of the GDP comes from SMBs versus almost 50% uh, in the United States, even though we have more of them proportionally. And and we, we believe a lot of that is just because you need to increase productivity, you need to increase formalization, you need to increase efficiency, all things that technology and software can do. So we, we, we're we big believers that uh, access to some of these new vertical software models are, are the way to go. And we think a lot of these companies are going to just compound over the next decade and create some of the big, big next opportunities uh, in, in the region. We've made a few investments in that space. And I think last but not least, in, in the more emerging camp, um, you know, we, we've actually gone into this uh, conversation, maybe, I don't know, half an hour or so without mentioning AI. There's probably some kind of record in a tech podcast these days. But uh, we, we think that AI and I think this new wave of, of generative AI actually has a, a lot of room to grow and expand and create value in, in Latin America. And I actually think, you know, more so even than the United States, because when we think about you know, businesses are meant to solve uh, unaddressed problems. We certainly have our fair share of problems. And, and when you think about the problems that, that exist in Latin America, some of them are access to quality education, access to quality healthcare. Maybe it's, you know, excess uh, red tape and bureaucracy. And these are all kind of prime candidates when you think about what generative AI can do. Can you bring, you know, sort of an individualized tutor for all? Or can you give access to medicine and high quality doctors and nurses and uh, uh, examination evaluations for everyone. And these are all kinds of use cases that are getting uh, developed very, very rapidly. We actually uh, uh, highlight a few companies that have shown real results by applying uh, AI models in education and healthcare, in, in the legal sphere, in debureaucratization. Uh, and even though this is something that's, you know, less than a year old, when you think about the new generative AI models, you already start seeing companies show real results. So when we think about what's to come in the next three years in such a fast moving environment, we're extremely excited about the kinds of businesses that can be built here and also about the real meaningful impact that they're going to have on our society. So we're, we, we, we've been supporting founders there. We've, I think we've been, we, we've been supporting the ecosystem as a whole in terms of trying to bring uh, more information, more awareness of what's going on here. And, and we hope to be deploying more and more dollars over the coming years against uh, these AI-enabled opportunities. Excellent. So let's get super tactical right now. It, for a founder today, what are round sizes looking like at the early stages? So the first thing I, I would say here is that the last year has been fairly slow as far as venture activity, right? We definitely had a, a general slowdown. You know, we, we've stabilized at, at a level that's maybe 65% lower than what it was a year ago and, and even more so than what it was the 2021 peak. So 
the first thing I would say is that the, the data points are still sparse, so it's hard to uh, have an exact conclusion. But just to give you a few a few guidelines, when when we looked at the peak period, uh, twenty twenty one, and we and we looked at let's call it a, like the average seed round that was getting raised here, you're probably talking about companies raising one and a half to two million dollar rounds in valuations that were you know twenty million dollars in in many cases. I mean, you saw. Some companies raising valuations that were forty to fifty million dollars, right? And we're talking about seed rounds here. So you definitely saw um, the exuberance flowing through uh, to the seed stages, both in terms of valuations and round sizes. Uh, fast forwarding a little bit in terms of the Series A and kind of the next round, you were probably looking at you know fifteen million dollar rounds getting raised and valuations that were you know starting at fifty million. You know, many going all the way up to hundred million. I'd probably peg the kind of the median Series A valuation at the peak at maybe I don't know seventy five million. You know, this is this, this is sort of my my estimate here. Now let's look at the last quarter, maybe as a as a good benchmark for for where we are today. I would say that you know seed has probably dropped by at least half. So those one and a half to two million dollar rounds are probably looking more like seven hundred and fifty thousand. You know, maybe at the high end of million dollar rounds getting raised. Uh, valuations that were at twenty million are probably now. You know, closer to you know seven to ten million, so that that gives you a little bit of parameters of everything kind of getting cut by at least half. Uh, at the A, uh, that's probably where you have the least amount of data. But I would say that our view, at least the qualitative feeling, is that valuations have reset. You know, to thirty to fifty percent of the value they were at the peak. So so roughly the same. I think round sizes are in the you know seven to ten million is probably a safe guess of what a sort of a typical you know Series A median round might look like today. Uh, and and again, those valuations at about half the the levels they were. So you're probably talking about you know thirty to fifty million dollar valuations today at the A, as opposed to those you know fifty to hundred million dollar kind of uh, um, gu- uh, uh, guidelines that we probably saw uh, at the peak pay periods. In what would you say if a founder asked you what needs to be true to raise a Series A today? I I actually a lot of founders ask me that question and and I don't love that question because I think it's really difficult to answer for different types of businesses, right? Like just to give you a sense of, at 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 Lunch School, um our our thesis here is that we invest in companies that are uh post product market fit, right? And have shown kind of early signs of product market fit. And and a lot of the time that translates to a series A. We've also seen that translate to a pre-series A. We've also seen that translate to a series B. So kind of different sizes of rounds, different valuations, um, and and different aspects of a company that you measure in order to determine product market fit. Um, so I think if if you look at a company, for example, in the healthcare space, right, that is a B2B company that depends on rolling out their product within a large insurance company that has 20, 20, uh, over 20% of, of all of the market share. That company might have different signs of product market fit that don't reflect yet in the revenue when you compare it to a consumer product, for example, right? So you have that kind of classic $1 million ARR benchmark that, that was being probably a little bit more ignored back in 2021, a little bit kind of over overrated uh, today. Um, but I think it's it's difficult to to generalize that that for founders. I don't know if we've ever given kind of consistent advice on this. Julio, what what would you say? You know, I don't know. I I always say kind of just focus on the problem you're solving and trying to build something that you feel has real meaningful impact. I I think try to kind of work backwards from what investors are looking for and what's hot and what's getting funded. 
you know, sure, I think maybe it's like a, a short term optimization, but at the end of the day, you're signing up for something for the next 10 years of your life. So, you know, if it's not an area that you're passionate about, and if it's not a product that, you know, consumers really want and solving a real need, at the end of the day, you know, anything that's kind of a, a short term optimization is gonna, is, is, is not gonna stand, is not gonna stand the test of time. Uh, as far as, you know, uh, our, our view as investors, Maybe what's changed is that you know businesses uh, that were maybe kind of growth at all costs, you know, very low margin, uh, very high capital costs. All those kind of businesses, I think the investment investment community as a whole has turned more sour to them. So, if you are as a founder thinking of something that kind of needs a a, a trillion dollars before it can turn a sort of positive growth margin, that's probably not going to fly nowadays anymore. Uh, but again, um, I think it's more just a sign of the time of everyone feeling a little bit more more cautious and look and looking for real business fundamentals. And when I say that, I mean sort of better unit economics, better profitability metrics a little earlier in the life of the business rather than you know postponing this um, at a term. I would say that kind of if you if you're looking at raising a a Series A as a founder, I think the most important question to to ask yourself even before you start thinking about. What's the ideal uh, revenue metric? The ideal gross profit metric at that stage is: Have I? Am I? Do I have the conviction that this product is showing the early signs of product market fit? So that once I raise a seven to ten million dollar round and I put more money into this machine, that it's going to yield the results that that I expect it to. And it's you know, you as a founder can answer that question much better that that than we can knowing one percent of your company versus a hundred percent of your company, right? Very good advice. Best part of being a founder is being able to write the rules. <laughs> um, and a couple of years ago, we heard a lot of buzz about global multi-stage firms being very active in Latin America. What are you seeing these days? Definitely the global multi-stage firms are taking some some of their foot off the gas pedal uh, as far as the the big crossover hedge funds, I would say. And I think that that's actually probably the case all over the world. You know, I think a lot of folks are just spending more time on on public markets that have had valuations reset a, a little faster than the private market. Uh, so you definitely see the the likes of the, you know, Tigers and Coatus and D1s that were pretty active, I think, kind of um, uh, retreating a little bit when it comes to the last year or so. Uh, I do think that there are some of the global platforms uh, that have been classically focused on venture. And here I, I would list firms like, you know, Andreessen Horowitz, uh, Thrive Capital, Lightspeed, as some of the names that we've seen uh, be quite active in Latin America in the past and continue to be so uh, today. And, you know, they're still spending time here, having partners fly down. It's definitely uh, an area that has sort of piqued their interest and and, and they see the opportunity. Uh, so it's 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 healthy for us to see that the global interest from you know true venture capital investors continues to be pretty strong strong in the region, even if maybe some of the call it hotter money that was coming from hedge funds and and I think some of these multi stage uh, uh, funds might, might be kind of uh, evaporating as it has everywhere in the world. Right. And could you describe a recent investment and how you got to conviction? Yeah, I can I can try to tie that maybe into into the report. I think Julio Julio talked a little bit about the the opportunity that that we see for software, right? And the and the reasoning behind that I think is is twofold. I think from the from the perspective of a small business, right? The the level that it's contributing to the GDP, we mentioned, you know, it's much lower than what we would expect 
in countries that have higher levels of digital maturity. Um, but also when you see, you start seeing the signs that these businesses are ready to be digitized. And of course, those signs are stronger or weaker, depending on what countries you are in. Um, but the, the, the uptake and adoption of digital tools, whether we're talking about digital payments or whether we're talking about software, gives us kind of the first indications that the, these businesses are ready to change the way that they function. Whereas historically, you know, what they've what they've done is usually, hey, I have I know someone that has built a software that kind of works for some of the problems that I have here in my business and everything else is kind of good enough. I do it on an Excel spreadsheet. I do it by hand and, you know, that's okay for my operations. But today we're seeing tools being built, um, which maybe we were seeing before, but that businesses weren't yet ready to adopt. Um, but now we're seeing the tools and the readiness for adoption increase, especially when we look to Brazil, a little bit less so when we look at the rest of Latin America. But honestly, we've been uh, incredibly surprised with, with what companies have been able to do for small businesses outside of, of Brazil as well. And so one, one investment that we've done in that space was a, a company called Fudo. Um, they're vertical software for restaurants. Uh, again, founders based off of Argentina. Um, the, the CTO was a former engineer at Ristorando, kind of one of the early tech companies in, in Argentina. Um, created the product, bootstrapped the company, and then the CEO kind of came in when the company was, was ready to scale uh, as a, a Mercado Pago alumni. And they started expanding this company outside of Argentina, gained really meaningful kind of market share, both in Argentina and Chile, and most recently launched in Colombia, Mexico, and, and now Brazil. And they've, they have been doing an incredible job of digitizing a lot of the workflows that, that are tricky for, for these restaurants. And I think what makes restaurants in specific, we have a, an interesting graph that we collaborated with our friends at, at Tidemark who are well known for their their pieces on on vertical software on which markets are kind of more prime for disruption when we look at Latin America and when we're talking about kind of prime for disruption we're talking about market size but also level of fragmentation and complexity of the of the workflows and how they differ from other industries and then therefore are harder to tackle from a horizontal software point of view and and restaurants are kind of at the top of that list um, so this is a company that we've been extremely excited about. Um, they've been doing a, an incredible job just launched here in Brazil. Um, maybe maybe that's one investment that comes out uh, from some of the, the research that we've shown in, in the report this year. Right. That's an impressive thesis. We backed Murado, which is SaaS and supply chain for beauty businesses. Yes. Yeah, so that's very aligned with that kind of theme and uh, enablement of uh, mobile commerce trends, which were highlighted in your report. So uh, wonderful. Well, um, we will link to your report in the show notes. And um, what's the best way for founders to reach you? I think you can always reach out to us on, on LinkedIn. Uh, either myself or Anna, we're, we're there. And I think usually the best way to get our attention is to find someone that we know in common, that we both trust and, and have them uh, introduce them to, to us. Okay. And then what's the final word on prediction for the next year and maybe the next decade for startups in Latin America? And I, I think on on my end, the prediction is 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 pretty is pretty simple. I think it's just we we've tried to show through data the the amount of value that stands to to be created by tech uh, when we think about the the next decade. I think the themes um, where that that are going to dictate where this value comes from are still to be decided. I think if they they were clear, maybe we would be would be out of a job. Um, but hopefully, we've we've given everyone enough data for for 
both investors and founders to to feel equipped and 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 educated enough about the region if you're coming from outside of the region to make an informed decision of where you believe that value is going to be created um, and where you kind of want to want to place your bets um so maybe it's a it's a very kind of non-prediction prediction um but just just being very excited about the the billions of dollars that can be created in value um over the next few years in latin america by by tech yeah i think at the at the end of the day what we've tried to do in the report this year is to really stick to this theme of the tectonic shifts that are happening in the region. And, and we highlighted five of them because we think that when you have these massive dislocations in the market, that's where opportunity arises. And the companies that embrace those changes and leverage those opportunities for innovation, and they could be new entrants like startups, but they could also be uh, incumbents that do embrace innovation. I think that they can really surf this positive wave of value creation and win from those tectonic shifts and those changes versus those that resist them. I think that this ends up being much more of a threat and much more of a challenge. So we would use that as a way to guide investors and entrepreneurs and executives' attention to where uh, there's the most dynamic uh, nature or dynamic changes in the, in the market today. Um, and, and try to innovate there. We, we ultimately think that our role as investors is not to predict the future, but really kind of bet on those that are defining that future. So we try to be smart and try to be educated about what's changing so that when the next entrepreneur that has a brilliant idea that we could have never imagined knocks on our door, we're ready to write that check quickly and sort of be able to support them in that journey. Wonderful. Well, Anna and Julio, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Panta, for having us. Thanks so much for listening to the Village Global podcast. You can check us out online at villageglobal.vc. We'd love to hear from you, your feedback, your ideas, your inspirations. You can email us at hello at villageglobal.vc.